Our scripture reading for today is from John chapter 17, verses 13 through 23. Uh, It's also found in your bulletin if you didn't bring your your Bible with you. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Translation, so please follow along with me and hear God's word to us, His people. Jesus says, But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will, be, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ so long ago prayed these words and prayed these words even for us on our behalf. We are thankful that He is our great High Priest and that He lives to intercede on our behalf. We pray this morning, O Lord, that You would send Your Holy Spirit to dwell within our hearts, that Your Holy Spirit would be present with us this morning, that we may hear Your Word And do what it says. Lord, help us, for we are helpless in ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, Lord's Prayer is the most well-known Christian prayer in history. There are churches that recite it every Sunday. There are Christians who recite it daily. There's even 12-step addiction recovery groups that end every one of their meetings with that prayer. And it's the prayer, of course, that begins, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I trust this morning that you've all heard that prayer before and you know which one I'm talking about. But you see, it actually might be more appropriate If that prayer was known as the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer, because when Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray, well, that was his response to them. He said, this is how you should pray. Well, how then did Jesus himself pray? Well, the Bible tells us that he was a man of prayer that prayed often. But his longest and most detailed prayer is found here in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. 
Traditionally, it's referred to as the high priestly prayer because in it, Jesus, as high priest of the new covenant, prays on behalf of his people as he is about to leave the world. You see, he's on the verge of going to Calvary, going to the cross to give himself, to die for the sins of his people. But what does Jesus pray for? Well, he actually prays for a lot of things if you read through this chapter. But you see, at the heart of his prayer, the part we're looking at this morning, is the Christian mission. It is the mission, the purpose for which Jesus has been sent into the world to accomplish. That is what he prays for. He doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray for comfort or for security. What he prays for is his mission. And specifically, he prays for those who will carry forth his mission once he is gone. As Missions Month draws to a close here at Christ Community, I thought I'd take the opportunity this morning to summarize this mission of Christ and the mission that He has given us, not because I think you don't know what it is after hearing about it all month, but because it really is that important. You see, there's nothing that is more fundamental, there's nothing more foundational to the Christian life than our mission. So what exactly is our mission? And why is it so important? How can we go about fulfilling this mission that Jesus has given us? Well, if you take a look at this text, what we find is that it's all right here. This passage shows us, first of all, what the Christian mission is. It shows us, second, why the Christian mission is so important. And then it tells us, third, how we can go about fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us. So first, what is the Christian mission? Well, in verse 18, Jesus gives us the story of what the Christian mission is all about. He says to his Father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, at first glance, we might look at that and you might say, well, the word mission doesn't really appear in this text. You know, where are you coming up with this, Jody? I don't see that word here. Well, you see, our word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. And very clearly, Jesus tells us, we see that, we see that the word send appears here twice. It says that he was sent, and then as he was sent, so he sends us. You see, Jesus tells us that not only is he a person in mission, but that anyone who becomes a follower of his also becomes someone in mission. A missionary is someone who is sent to show someone something. Missionaries are messengers. They're representatives and ambassadors sent to represent someone before someone else. You know, in our government, we elect people that go to Washington, D.C. to represent us and to govern on our behalf. And then around the world, we have places, we have embassies where we in the U.S. send ambassadors to and where other countries, uh, of course, send theirs here to us to show what our countries are like and what our interests are and to work on our behalf. 
So missionaries then are ambassadors. And verse 14 of this passage tells us that Jesus was a missionary. He was an ambassador on behalf of God who came to show us who God is and what he's like by giving us God's word. Now I know that all of you know what it means to give someone your word. When you give someone your word, that means that you're telling people the truth. It means that you're dealing with them honestly and with integrity, telling them how things really are and who you really are. And the Bible tells us that God the Father sent Jesus, His Son, into the world to bring us God's Word. But it also tells us not only that Jesus was sent in the world to bring us God's Word, but that Jesus is the Word of God Himself. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you read on down in that chapter, when you get to verse 14, you find this incredible uh, uh, truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Christian mission then is, first of all, about God sending Jesus into the world to bring us God's truth. Jesus has come to reveal to us who God really is so that we don't have to guess what He's like and what He desires of us. But secondly, the second thing this tells us is that God sent Jesus into the world to bring us God's grace. He has come to bring us God's salvation. In verse 19, Jesus says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Jesus sanctified himself. He set himself apart in order to make broken people whole. He came and set himself apart in order to make sinful people, people like you and me, holy. That is what his mission is. He came to make broken people whole. Jesus is a missionary sent not just to show us who God is and what He desires, but He is sent to redeem, to save people, He says. Well, save people from what? Interestingly enough, Jesus was not only sent to come into this world to show us God, but He was also sent to save us from God. Jesus came to save us from God's wrath. The wrath of God that we have incurred and the death that we deserve because of our sin against the Father. And what is sin? What is sin? Well, simply put, sin is man substituting himself for God. Blaise Pascal, who was a famous French philosopher and mathematician, he once said this. He said that God made man in his own image And man returned the compliment. That's a pretty good definition of sin. See, sin is deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. Sin is living for your own glory and your own importance and your own fulfillment. And the problem is that every one of us do this without even really thinking about it. It just comes natural. Why? It's because it's our nature. We all have a sinful nature. 
Our sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam, the father of all mankind, who being created in God's image, rebelled against his creator. Desiring to live as if he were God, Adam sinned. He committed treason against God and in doing so, he brought the curse of sin and self-centeredness and suffering and death and into the world and to all mankind. And if that wasn't bad enough, what makes matters even worse is that there's nothing we can do to overcome it. There's nothing that you and I can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. Now that's the bad news. And if we stop right there, there's no hope for any of us. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. Why did Jesus do that? Well, if you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and as Josh reminded us this morning when he when we began worship, he reminded us that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. Josh reminded us that under the old covenant, under the Old Testament, the Israelites had to have a high priest who would go into the temple and to make these sacrifices, sacrifice animals on their behalf so that their sins would be covered by the blood. You see, Hebrews 9.22 says that according to the law of Moses, Nearly everything is purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But you see, the problem was the high priest had to continually do this over and over again for God's people. But he also had to do it for himself because he too was a sinner. You see, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't good enough to cover the sins of the people. But incredibly... What Hebrews tells us is that the blood of Jesus Christ is. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 says, Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered the greater perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made with human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, it says, not the blood of bulls and calves, he entered into the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. So this tells us that Jesus Christ himself is not only the great high priest that we need, but he's also the greater sacrifice to which every sacrifice in the Old Testament points. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death on behalf of all those who put their faith in Him. God accepts the perfect life that they owe Him and the death they deserve because of their sins as paid in full by Jesus. That is the good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is because we substituted ourselves for God... God in Jesus Christ substituted himself for us. That is glorious. That is incredible that we have been made right with God, not by our efforts, but by the efforts of another. You see, the Christian mission then is God sending Jesus in the world to bring us this truth and this salvation to his people. And now it is our mission The mission he has given us is to take that message, that good news, out into the world. 
Notice what Jesus says. He says here that He was sent, and as He was sent, so He sends us. That is our mission. Now, why is that important? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's our point, our second point here this morning. Why is the Christian mission so important? You see, in verse 20, regarding his mission, Jesus says, I pray not only for these disciples, but also for whoever will believe in me through their message. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one. You are in me, and I am in you. May they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The reason the Christian mission is so important is because it's through our unity, our unity as followers in Jesus' missions, that is the mean by which the world will know the truth that God sent Jesus in the world in order to save it. It is the world that is at stake here. It is for the world's sake, Jesus says, He came into the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, and then when I look at myself, and when I look at other churches and other denominations, that doesn't exactly ex- inspire me to have a very positive outlook for the world. I mean, in all honesty, we can't even get together. We can't even agree on v- many things, on everything in our own denomination, much less with other denominations, how we're supposed to go forth in this world and reach it for Christ's sake. Well, isn't that one of the common objections that we often hear about to Christianity and why it can't be true? How can Christianity be true when there's so many denominations under the Christian banner? How can Christianity be true then when there's so many different religions in the world? You know, when we think about how poorly Christians have treated one another at times in the past, and when we think of how bad Some religions have treated others in the world. It's easy to see why somebody might ask those questions. However, just because there are many different Christian denominations and because there are so many religions in the world, that does not mean that Christianity cannot be true. For example, regarding this uh, many denominations objection, consider this for a moment. If somebody from another country, an ambassador, let's say from Iran, came to you as an ambassador of the U.S. and asked you this question, well, what political party really represents the ideals of the people in the United States? What would you say? What would you say? Out of all the political factions that exist in this country, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans, the Green Party, Tea Party, all the rest, which one accurately represents the American public? Well, if you're going to answer that question as unbiased as possible, you'd have to say that in some way they all represent the ideologies of the American people. How is that possible? Well, because the U.S. is made up of all kinds of different people that have differing interests, the focus tends to be on different issues for different people. That's just the way we are. You see, some of the issues we feel very strongly on other issues, uh, we maybe don't feel so strongly. So, of course, they look different. Of course, we have different political parties. And you see, the Christian denominations are a lot like this. You know, we all tend to focus on different things. We have differences and we do things different ways. 
But despite all of our differences, the bond we share is that the only way to be right with God, the only way to know the true living God, is through the person of Jesus Christ. And it is only as strong as we are in that bond. The stronger we are in that bond, the stronger we're going to be in our witness to the world. But of course, that's the second objection. That's where the second question that we just talked about comes in, isn't it? How can be, there be so many, uh, how can Christianity be true when there's so many different religions in the world? Well, you see, what's often implied when people ask that question is that no one should insist that their view of God is better than anyone else's. What they're saying is that every religion ought to be seen as being the same, as being equally valid. But you see, when people say that, that no religion should be seen as more right than any other, that can only be true, one, if there is no God, or two, if God is an impersonal force that doesn't care what you believe or how you live. You see, the view that all religions lead to the same place, that view isn't consistent and it can't be. Because what you're really saying, that my view of all religions being the same, is better than your one religious view. But you see, that's the very thing you just said I can't do, right? You're saying that there shouldn't be any absolute uh, views when it comes to God, but that itself is an absolute view. Do you see that? Do you see how this works? Alvin Plantinga, who was a philosophy professor that taught at Notre Dame for almost 30 years, he was once asked by someone, or once told by someone, that if he was born in Madagascar, he likely wouldn't even be a Christian. And his response to that is, yeah, that's probably correct. But are you telling me, therefore, that Christianity cannot be true because of that? He said, if you were born in Madagascar, you probably wouldn't be a religious relativist. Does that mean, therefore, what you're saying isn't true? See, it's a weak argument to try to say that all religions are equally valid. It just doesn't work. And as Christians, we need to be able to show people this. We need to be able to have these answers and to lovingly and intelligently engage people with their questions and with their doubts. That, too, is part of our mission. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet it also says, Do this with gentleness and with respect. And unfortunately, I think this is where we have often failed miserably. We failed because instead of answering others, even those in our own faith, with gentleness and respect, our tendency is to answer others with pride and maybe with the same hostility that they're asking us these questions and maybe that they're showing us. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because sin is still in our nature. You see, even though we as Christians have come to know Jesus through faith, we are still prone by our sinful self-centeredness not to love others as Jesus loved and as he has commanded us to love. So now what does all this mean? Well, I think at the very least what it means that we as Christians need Jesus as much as anybody else does. And therefore, we ought to be incredibly humble and gentle people, especially in the way we deal with others who do not believe like we do. 
Jude verse 22 says this. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because Christians are people who are saved by grace through Jesus' work. Not by what we know and not by what we do. And it's to the degree that we understand this and we believe this deeply and then live this out with other Christians before the whole watching world only by God's grace then to that degree will the world be able to see the the Father's love and believe that He sent the Son into the world in order to save it. That is the message of our mission, and that's why it's so important. You see, apart from us going, apart from us taking this astonishing news of redemption to the world, the world's not going to be changed. Politics isn't going to do it. Our best efforts aren't going to do it. It's Christ and His mission that will change the world. That's what the world needs. But you see, in our going, in our fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us, He's also told us that this is not going to be easy. It's going to be incredibly difficult. In fact, so much more that we're not even going to be able to handle it on our own. Because what Jesus prays for in verses 14 through 16, He says, I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But notice when he prays to the Father, he doesn't pray for us to be taken out of the world. No, he prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. And then he says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. How in the world are we going to be able to fulfill this mission? How can we go about in our day-to-day lives fulfilling the Christian mission in the midst of a world that is hostile and that doesn't like us? And then on top of that, with all of our differences and our weaknesses and our failures. That's point number three. Well, Jesus tells us in this passage there are two things that we need to go about fulfilling this world-changing mission. And we find them in the beginning and the end of this passage. First, in verse 13, Jesus says, Father, I am coming to you. I speak of these things in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says it is the things he spoke of in this world, his truth and his salvation. It is Jesus fulfilling his mission, what we call the gospel, that brings joy. That's what brings lasting joy in people's lives. Do you know how I know that? Well, when Jesus Christ was presented with this world-changing mission by His Father, Hebrews chapter chapter 12 and verse 2 says that it was for the joy. It was for the joy that was set before Him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. You see, it was joy that led Jesus into mission. And in fulfilling his mission, he also brings joy to his followers that we may go out and fulfill his mission in the world. You see, what Jesus is trying to show us is that joy and mission must go together. They go together. But you see, there's something else he tells us here that goes with joy and with mission. And we find that down in verses 22 and 23. He says, the glory that the Father has given me, 
I give to them, my followers, that they may be one even as I and the Father are one. That they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that the Father has sent me and loved you as he has loved me. Jesus is showing us that joy and glory and mission all go together. You see, without joy and without glory, there is no mission. And without mission, there's going to be no real glory and no real joy. And we know that because the Bible tells us as much. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7 says that God created us for His glory. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says that when we were created, God created us for mission. He created us to do something. He said, go into the world and be fruitful and multiply. That's why I created you. But you see, when Adam sinned, all these things were ruined. They were marred. But all these are things that Jesus has come into the world to restore. He's come to restore our joy and our glory. And he's come to restore our mission by doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And the remarkable thing that Jesus is telling us in the first and last verses of this passage is that we already have all these things restored to us through faith in him. But now, if that is indeed the case, that we have His joy, that we have His glory, that we have His mission, why are so many of us today lacking joy in our lives? Why are so many of us lacking this real sense of satisfaction, glory, in our lives and in our work? Why are we as the church not really fulfilling our mission to go into the world and lead a lot of people to faith in Christ? Why are we not doing that? Why are our marriages and our families and our communities and our nation and other nations continuing to fall apart every day? It's because we have tried to separate joy and glory from God's mission. We've separated joy and glory from God's mission. As a culture, what we've done is we've bought into this idea that there is nothing more important than my own personal happiness and fulfillment. We've said there is no higher cause than seeking my own glory, meeting my own needs, seeking my own comfort and joy. So that anything, if anything comes into our lives that gets in the way of that, even things like the vows I've made to my spouse or the vows that I've made to my church, or the commitments I've made to other people, if anything gets in the way of my happiness, well, then it has to go. Because my happiness takes precedent. But in thinking about all this, what you must see is that will absolutely destroy mission. There can be no mission when our chief end is to live for our own glory and not God's glory. You see, if there's no higher cause than our own happiness, then there's nothing to deny our happiness for. I heard a pastor say that in a sermon when he was talking about this recently. And what he went on to say was that if there's no higher cause than my joy, then there's nothing for me to die for. And therefore, there's nothing for me to really live for. And then by virtue, there's nothing for me to have mission for. 
You see, we all believe that, that by living for ourselves, that will somehow produce real freedom for us. You know, that's why we all have trouble committing to things and to committing to people. Because something better might come along that offers us more happiness or more freedom. But here's the irony to that. That hasn't produced any freedom, not real freedom at all. No, what it's produced in us is bondage. You see, by trying to make ourselves relevant, all we have done is to make ourselves irrelevant because we've got nothing to give ourselves to and nothing to give ourselves for. So what good really are we then? What good are we to anybody else around us into the world? Well, if we're only living for ourselves, we're really not. We're not really good for anybody, and that's a pretty depressing thing for us to think about, isn't it? Sure it is. But you see, I think that might be at least part of the reason, maybe one of the reasons, why there are so many people in our world who are struggling with depression. You see, they've tried to receive everything that the world has had to offer them, yet in getting it, they found that they're still not happy. But you see, now in knowing that, you know the secret behind the, how the Bible can say something as audacious as it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because it was Jesus himself who spoke those words. And who would know better than him, right? Who would know better than Jesus, whom Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 says, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has indeed given everything of himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Leaving the glory of heaven, setting his heavenly glory aside, he came into the world and he went to the cross and he gave up his joy in order that we might be saved from all our sins, even our sin in seeking our own glory and our own joy apart from God's mission. Jesus suffered and died for our self-centeredness, beloved, but he rose from the dead in power so that we could be counted righteous before God, so that we could be one together in his power, and so that we could go into the world to fulfill the mission he has given us to proclaim the truth of who he is and what he's done, to serve those around us by denying ourselves so that they might live, giving even what he has blessed us with in radical proportions so that others might live and be blessed. God never calls anyone to himself that he doesn't also send out into the world. And if you're here this morning and you don't have this sentness in your life, if you're not living for God's mission, if you've never trusted that it's Jesus alone who can make you right with God, would you do that today? Would you look to Jesus and trust in Him and His work on your behalf? You see, His requirement to be a part of His mission, to be a part of His kingdom, to be saved, as you hear Christians talk about all the time, is simply to confess your sins and that you are living for your own glory. And every one of us are. We all are. But then he calls us to turn from that and to ask him to save us. 
That's what he's calling us to do, to believe that only he can save us. And Jesus says, if you say that to me, if you ask me to do that, I'll do it. That's why I came. Will you commit your life to him today? Will you commit your life to his mission today? You know, a great way of doing this is to pray to him. It's to pray to him and ask him to give you faith. That's a great way of exercising your trust in him. Why? Well, because what it shows is that you're not trusting in yourself to save yourself. You're asking for him and his mercy to do what you can't do. And Jesus will save you. If you've never trusted him, will you look to him and pray to him today? Cry out to him and he will save you. And then will you join us in becoming part of his world-changing mission. Now, for those of you who have done that, those of you who are already a part of his world-changing mission, will you today do that again? (laughs) Will you commit yourself once again today and tomorrow and to the day after that, every day, to seeking his glory and his joy by faith so that we can faithfully move forward in his mission? Jesus says that it's by our unity, our oneness in the gospel, that the world will know and believe in him. And brothers and sisters, God's joy and his glory are already yours. They're yours. Take hold of them by faith because nothing else in this life is ever going to fill you up. Nothing in this life is ever going to satisfy you because you were made for far greater things than what this world has to offer. You were made for life-changing mission and nothing less. Let us recommit ourselves to that today. By God's grace and through faith through Jesus. Let us recommit ourselves to giving our time and our talents and our treasure so that we can send, so that we can go, so that the gospel may go forth and the world may be blessed by the blessing we've received. Jesus came and he set himself apart to make us whole so that we could be set apart to go and make others whole. Come to Jesus and receive that you can go out from here and serve. That is the Christian mission. Let's go to the Lord and ask that he would give us his Holy Spirit so that we can do it. Let's pray.